I still think that that white coat mad scientist image of research is out there and is is still quite high in patient population. Um, those who have different views to you are not idiots and we need to explore our views and their views and see if we can then work out where a consensus can sit. Say you're writing about inflammatory bowel disease, but if someone with Crohn's reads that article, then they should have a feeling to what this means mm. from the way you've written that abstract. The abstracts are nearly always freely available, so why not use that as a mechanism to try and expand the way that we can talk to people outside of the academic sphere? Hello, my name is Rachel Agbeko. I'm one of the associate editors of Archives of Disease in Childhood, or ADC. I'm also a consultant in paediatric intensive care. Welcome to the new ADC Spotlight podcast. We'll be covering areas that don't usually get much attention or might be taken for granted. The aim being to engage in dialogue and inquiry, being curious how we might do things differently. In this first podcast, I'm joined by Jennifer Preston, Senior Patient and Public Involvement Manager at the University of Liverpool. Hugh Davies, Pediatrician and Research Ethics Advisor at the Health Research Authority. And Bob Phillips, Pediatric Oncologist and Social Media and Archimedes Editor for ADC. Simon Stones, Patient, Advocate and Consultant, wasn't able to join us for this session, but was there in spirit, if not in person. The four papers we've discussed are making research central to good paediatric practice, how to involve children and young people CYP in what is, after all, their research, a framework to help design and review research involving children, and how to navigate the ethical review of research. They are part of a series that will be published between April and July 2019, and they can be found in the editions of ADC, or visit our website on adc.bmj.com. For me, Take-home messages were engage with children, young people and their parents as equal partners in research. Frame the ethical reviewing process in the same way. That is, this too is a dialogue. And what we call research and clinical practice are not necessarily two different entities. They may indeed be the same thing. It's all about learning. I hope you'll enjoy the conversation. I have with me Jenny. Bob and Hugh. Would you mind saying what your background is, please? Thanks very much for, for, for asking us to talk here. Um, I'm a retired paediatrician. I worked in London and Oxford, uh, but over the latter parts of my clinical career, I became interested in research ethics and I was chair of one or two ethics committees. I was a uh, research ethics advisor at the Health Research Authority, and I'm now a, a training advisor provide training for research ethics committee members we've produced or written four papers i mean four practical papers and we emphasize the word practical on research involving children and we hope they'll um help researchers uh, regulators and reviewers toward better or more ethical research i suppose most of all we'd like to say hope they make children and young people better we believe research is key to treatment and research We'd also just like to note that the, the provenance of this the, comes from a Health Research Authority training initiative, which brought the four of us together. Thank you. 
I'm Bob Phillips. I'm a part-time paediatric oncologist and part-time academic at the University of York. I was uh, invited to be part of the training team for the HRA, thinking about research and ethics. And then from that, these papers arrived. The first paper in our series is called Making Research Central to Good Paediatric Practice, because um, we want to make a, a real stand there and say that if you're going to be a good paediatrician, then you're going to have to engage with research, even if you're not doing it yourself, to make the whole process better, more efficient and more effective. Well, that's a, that's a nice introduction to, uh, to the educational aspects there, uh, thereof. May I introduce to you Jenny? My name's Jenny Preston. I am the Senior Patient and Public Involvement Manager for the University of Liverpool and I've worked on numerous NIHR and other funded projects for the last 14 years, delivering a strategy to ensure young people and family involvement in research design and delivery. I was involved in writing the second paper of the series on how to involve children and young people in what is, after all, their research. We've based this chapter on some of the highlights and um, top tips that we've found out over the years, um, written from our experience in the UK and wider, so we work across Europe and internationally. Um, and we co-authored this um, paper with a young person with a, you know, a vast amount of experience of um, health research design and delivery. In the UK, we have a strong history of um, patient participant involvement. Uh, and I think that the Medicines for Children Research Network was, very, was a lead in this. And Jenny, I think, has taken a lead in this. So I think we've got a, we've got a, a very good story to tell. Yes, and what he also liked about it was that it's a practice what you preach there. Yeah, yeah. If I move on to the third paper, it's a framework to help the design and review of this research. I suppose the question is, is it too much to believe that we can build and share a framework? It would seem that if researchers, reviewers, regulators can share a framework of deliberation on research, it's going to make our lives so much easier. Um, obviously, we've got to be cautious we don't jeopardise ethical standards. But I think that together, if we share a framework, then we can build better research. Um, the note of caution is that we recognise that um, there's a lot of guidance out there. So we very deliberately and carefully thought we're not going to write new guidance. We really just want to shape an approach to help people look at research involving children. Uh, that makes total, total sense, Hugh. Um, as you say, there's shelves groaning under guidance, um, and this might be a very nice translation into the practicalities thereof. We hope so. <laughs> would, you, would you like to describe the, the final uh, paper? We hope it can help overcome the fear and maybe the hostility sometimes between reviewer and researcher and particularly how reviewers see research. Um, you know, I think the quote, if we understand each other, can we even become friends, uh, ensuring we don't collude? Yes. So the, the tension between um, collusion uh, and regulation is it, is, can be a tricky one. Yes, I think it can. Um, we have to maintain a certain, I don't know if it's distance, uh, we, we have to ensure that uh, rev reviewers don't review research that they've designed themselves. I mean, there are past examples of that. Uh, it has to be a robust process of probity. But 
it seems that the, the profitable times, instances where researchers and reviewers or regulators have talked to each other have led to a better understanding and better research. I think one thing that we really wanted to develop was the idea that it isn't about sides. It's not about the researchers battling with the governance committees. This is about us all taking our different seats around a table where the objective is to improve the quality of research and make sure that it is safe and sensible and going to get the right answers. In the past, certainly, it's been a bit of a thing about going to battle the ethics committee, where it's not really like that, and it shouldn't be like that. Um, it should be about talking to a bunch of expert volunteers to make things better for research that is important to children, young people and their families. I think coming from my point of view as well, in the world of patient and public involvement, it's about making sure that if you involve the children and young people and families at a very early stage in the design, the impact is likely to be bigger on their health um, because it's likely to be more child appropriate and friendly for them to participate in the actual research. Um, it's, it's not involvement for involvement's sake, but there's a there's a there's a real goal to that. Yeah. So the, as we are talking, all of us are quite convinced about the the use of research, and our readers would have that as uh, as well. But I wondered whether you could talk a bit about some people in our uh, in society may not hold that same view. Yeah, there's a sort of couple of things that really uh, spring to mind when you when you talk about that. Um, and the first is that in general, it can be misunderstood what research is, um, and that there may be a community view of research where children are being experimented upon by mad scientists, um, often with uh, unfeasibly spiky hair. Mm -hmm. um, and that isn't what clinical research is about, and that's what we. Um, know about and we know that clinical trials are very very strongly regulated um, to make them as safe as possible. There is a, a more subtle way of disliking research I think that happens as well um, and that's that some uh, of our uh, uh, paediatric and child health colleagues um, have a view that research is very good, it's very helpful um, but it's not for us. Um, because it's too complicated or uh, it's too ivory tower or it, it doesn't relate to my special patients. Um, and I think we'd like to challenge that and say, actually, the only way we can improve things is by doing research where children need healthcare. And that even if you're not an academic researcher, you can still gain something by understanding research so that you can enable it or promote it or, or become one of the people that is working with the researchers. The good research will only come when we have patient involvement, healthcare involvement and academic involvement. The, the example that I like to use being a paediatric oncologist um, is looking back at how we've changed from the 1970s with sort of survival in leukemia being counted in hundreds of days. Um, and now we're talking about 90% or more of children with a childhood leukemia surviving and surviving through into old adulthood, you know, even beyond the age of 46, they'll still be alive. Um, and that's because of research, that's because of trials, that's because of understanding the biology and taking it right the way through. 
Uh, we've seen that exploded within neonates recently with very big trials taking place. And nowadays you can't walk onto a pediatric intensive care unit without the, 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 the posters around for three or four different studies taking place. And, and to lots and lots of us, that's exactly how it should be. Yeah, I think that that's, that's a, the important point. And it's the, from the research ethics view, there's been a past history that research and treatment should be separate. And that the reality, I think, as Bob has clearly outlined, is that they should be um, cautiously together because good research leads to good practice. Uh, and that, therefore, the, 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 the thesis, or one of the theses was the first article, was to try to bring this out and say, we need to re-examine how research and care relate. And we need to move away from this uh, so apartheid or separation of research and treatment. And the other point I'd make is that in, in the work that we've done at the Health Research Authority, the first reaction is one of caution from people you approach. But once you talk to them and explain what you're doing in research, they often start saying, well, why, you know, carry on. It's a great thing. Do it, do it, do it. And we see that with patients and participants. But in all this, we have to build a partnership between all the different parties, a respect and engage in a respectful debate. Um, because those who have different views to you are not idiots. It's just they held genuinely a different view. And we need to explore our views and their views and see if we can then work out where a consensus can sit. Indeed, yeah. so the inquiry mindset uh, doesn't uh, just apply to the research per se. As you say, it equally applies to getting everyone around the table um, and holding their views uh, in a way that is um, interested in. I would add to that in terms of that disconnect between so it's like care and research and especially with patients and the public and the work that we've done there to highlight and demystify research in a way that, that people understand. Um, I still think that that white coat mad scientist image of research is out there and that disconnect between their care um, and research findings is, is still quite high in patient population. We've done a lot of work, especially with young people, to try and demystify that. Um, but it's been a difficult one because you only hear bad things in the media when things go wrong. So it, it's, it's, it's been a steep learning curve. It takes time too, doesn't it, Jenny? That it's, it's, not, it's very easy to go out and survey a population and say, what do you think of research? And there's usually a cautious response. But we need to go out, we need to sit with people, talk with them, exchange our views, and, yeah. then, and then try and work from there. But that takes time. It obviously takes resources and money. Um, and it's problematic. It's easier just to go out and do the survey. Uh, you know, and the, 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 the old adage, simple questions, simple answer, usually wrong. Yeah. So, Jenny, would you have some, some leading points to sort of say, well, this is how you might uh, approach it for people who are thinking about having people participate uh, in their research? I mean, I would obviously I'm going back to patient and public involvement now. And if you've got a good model of patient involvement in your research, then the dissemination of that study to the wider public would be much better than if you didn't have good patient and public involvement. Can I add to that? Sorry to interrupt. It's actually good patient and participant involvement eases review. So for yeah. our, 
for our listeners who may be thinking, you know, how, how do I help my cause? Actually, getting pu public and patient involvement early on with the whole project makes review a lot easier. And that's something we say in our fourth paper. There are many models for involving patients and the public in, in research design and delivery, but I'm just going to give you an example of the models that we chose, especially with children and young people, because you have to be a bit more imaginative and flexible when you're working with young people. So one model that I developed in 2006 was through the Forum of a Young Persons Advisory Group. Um, and it was funded at the time by what was the NIHR Medicines for Children's Research Network. Um, it was led by the principle that group activities should transform children and young people from research subjects into research partners so they could take on active roles in research projects in a safe space and at weekends to accommodate their school and extracurricular activities. In the first few years of piloting the Young Persons Advisory Group approach, it was the young people who shaped how they wanted the group to work, what times they wanted to meet and how they wanted the meetings to run. Um, and that way they felt a connection to the group and felt, felt valued. One of the biggest points they made in the early years, and I'll, I'll never forget this, was that about the importance of research teams attending um, young people's advisory group meetings. Um, to present the studies in a child-friendly way, thus really you know, resulting in a real dialogue between the young people and the researchers, because we'd originally set it up so that we would present as facilitators of that YPAG the research idea or issue or topic or debate, and the young people would be asking us for responses. And as you know, we were not familiar with that research study, we just couldn't give them the answers that they wanted there and then. So they wanted a more of a role in the design of the research, for example, discussing patient reported outcomes, was the study practical in terms of the amount of procedures involved, i.e. hospital visits, amount of blood tests, for example. Um, but more importantly, they wanted to work with the researchers to put all of this information in child-friendly information sheets so that children and families could make that informed decision to participate in health research. So... And that, therefore, would then help the researchers get it through the ethics review, as, as Hugh has already mentioned. Um, but this can somewhat challenge the dynamics for researchers who've never really consulted with young people before, as they have to be flexible, and they have to, as they have to meet on a Saturday. And they also have to be challenged by young people there on the spot about their research, and not many researchers are um, are used to ha that happening <laughs> so it's quite an experience for researchers to come along and um, present their research to a, a, an audience of young people um, and that model we that model of young people's involvement is something that we've adopted for our parents and carers of children with long-term conditions and it's working really well so after the initial shock to the researchers what happens after they've had that experience so they'll come along, they'll present their research to the group, they'll get quite a lot of what we call um, constructive critical feedback, and uh, in most cases anyway, and um, the research will go away and then we, we get the researcher to sign an agreement in advance of coming to the meetings so that they actually say this is what we'll do as a group and this is what we expect of you and part of that 
expectation from researchers is to feed back what happens as a result of young people's input. But that's taken many years of experience to, to get that loop of feedback coming back to the young people so that they feel valued and they feel as if they're really having an impact on children's research in the UK. Indeed. That might actually be quite a nice point to then talk a bit about uh, one of the ladders um, in the in the papers. Uh, could you talk about Arnstein's ladder and where we are? Yeah, so we refer to the ladder as the ladder of citizen participation. Um, it comes from the relationship between community and government um, by using a ladder as a metaphor for increasing access to decision-making power. So it's being used in... Um, patient and public involvement field for many years and we used it when I first set up the young persons group in 2006 to just get a, an understanding of where young people actually sit on the ladder and obviously the bottom rung meaning that it was either it was limited power or you know decision making processes happening with young people so I'd like to think that we're actually quite high up on the ladder for young people's involvement but I think without sounding too negative, I think we have achieved, you know, quite a bit of progress in this space, but I think there's always more to be done. Um, So, for example, we could, you know, involve more young people as co-investigators or co-applicants of studies. But, you know, how you do that in an effective way is um, is quite challenging so that we can it's it becomes routine it's ethically sound it more importantly it's diverse so we're you know we've given young people equity of access to these young people's advisory groups or other model of patient involvement and that there's a standardized quality of involvement so it's not just a tick box exercise right Hugh might you pick up on that and and, and talk a bit about uh, some models that put that into context yeah, that, that, that's sort of uh, in the second part of the, the first paper, Making Research Central to Good Pediatric Practice. It's two models on which one can build um, discussion, democratic deliberation and accountability for reasonableness. They're, they're models from the United States. And I suppose what I'd say is let's not get caught up too much with names or with, with provenance. It's really the content that matters. Um, and there are ways, there are structured ways in which we can hopefully foster respectful debate, uh, particularly when we have differences. I think that the modern view of research is that it should be a partnership. And I think that around research, we need a practical partnership and a practical dialogue, uh, which is respectful, listening to each other's views. Uh, They have reasons for their views. And how can we and perhaps democratic deliberation and accountability for reasonableness are ways to get from opinions which we hold with great strength, to reasons which are probably more amenable to dialogue and discussion. Uh, Dare I say grown up amongst a group of paediatricians, but it's got to be a more grown up discussion. What what also comes to mind when you you talk about that is that it's not all about uh, a rational approach while uh, debating, discussing or having a conversation about uh, research. There's something about uh, an emotional understanding of that. And and that's maybe something that Bob could maybe expand on a bit. Yeah, I think we're thinking about the the emotional aspect of research. You've 
got to understand it in lots of different ways. It, it, research can produce strong emotions um, and you can also bring with you um, a lot of baggage that you might be unaware of uh, perhaps and, and, and certainly that can happen with the regulators as well. Within our sort of professional sphere I'd like us to get to the point where we can be emotionally comfortable with research which means we have to be in a position that says we don't know the answers to stuff. We, we might be doing one thing, but we're not certain it's the right thing. And that means that we have to be comfortable with uncertainty and we have to be comfortable with asking the question, could we do it better? Can things be made different? And not completely stuck on one view of how to do research or how to answer that question. Because of course, the regulators are sometimes not different than us. There are paediatricians, there are child health practitioners who are part of the ethics committees. There is a general feeling that research is good in those environments and it's bringing that forwards and developing it. And as Jenny was saying earlier, capturing the emotion of the public so that we can get people on board with doing research, which isn't doing experiments on people and then driving that on into practice. because We've got to close that loop. We've got to bring the answers that we come out of the academic stuff back into practice and back into the public. Indeed, and for that to happen then, uh, then Bob, in terms of bringing that into cycle, then you need to think about the dissemination of the, uh, of the findings of the research. So after the research is done, uh, well conducted and participatory, then what? How do we how do we get to uh, bringing the findings broader uh, than the the professional journals which we're all familiar with? That's tricky. It's not clear what the right answer is. There are lots of different ways to try and tell people about stuff. Um, there's the conferences. There's the paper that you write up. There might be a piece that the researcher writes for a magazine that is related to that condition so for example in children's cancer there's the contact magazine um, which is circulated around the place to to families um, that have been affected by childhood cancer why not try to get into the media pick up the clinical trials day and see as the local radio comes around your hospital and tell them about trials that have made a difference um, and that you have been involved with and and, and get them interested in driving it forwards on the media as well. Why not, as you're doing your participatory work, see if it's not you that should be talking about the results instead, and maybe it's better that it's one of the young people that's been involved with the research that then goes out on stage and tells people what that research is about and why it makes a difference. Certainly in the National Cancer Survivorship Initiative, when we did a, a review bringing together the work around how you looked after people years after a children's or young person's cancer diagnosis, the people who took the, the, the primary point of explaining what that research meant were the young people that had been through a cancer experience out the far side and were part of our systematic review panel. I mean, ideally, we'd like one of the YouTube blogger types to pick up one of our studies and be desperate to talk about it so that then 30,000 people around the world could all be terribly thrilled at the latest procalcitonin measurements that we've been doing. But that's not going to happen. Maybe the nearest thing we can hope for is that somebody in a soap opera develops uh, an illness, goes into a trial and then gets the trial results spread out. I mean, that'd be quite good for us in terms of disseminating. 
And I think we've got to be open to all those opportunities and push them forwards, but in a realistic way. So we're not just saying, oh, such and such is amazing, it's the new wonder drug, um, when all we've done really is test it on five or six cells in a lab, uh, and we've no idea whether it makes a difference to any human being or not. I, I agree. And, you know, thinking outside the box is what you're saying, Bob. And, you know, I'm a true believer in that. And, you know, some examples that we've done is, um, you know, developed animations about study findings aimed at children, young people who've taken part in the research. You know, we've developed YouTube clips um, linked to study websites, although we didn't have a, you know, a celebrity, which was a shame. But, it, you know, it's one way to do it. Um, and theatre and debates linking the art and the sciences together. We're doing a project now looking at antibiotic resistance. And it's just a way to get out study findings or information about a study out to different audiences in a manner that they'd, you know, sit and listen to. Um, you know, at the University of Liverpool, for example, as in many other universities, they have public engagement teams. They do fantastic work, including things like Meet the Scientist which often takes place in a pub, which is always good, <laughs> um, to get the public involved in scientific debates and findings. Um, so there's means and ways of doing it other than just a, you know, a professional journal, which most members of the public don't have access to or are aware that they exist. So is there something also about how do we humanise the researcher? I think some people are great at talking about their research and other people's research and some people it's not their skill and they are best leaving it to other people um, there are different ways of of going around that but i think, that, I think it's a, a fair thing to do in some teams one thing that's been suggested is that when you're writing your abstract um, for a scientific journal you should write it in a way that is understandable by the intelligent audience that has some sort of buy-in to that sphere so it may not be that anybody walking in the street will be able to read it and understand it but you should be able to write say you're writing about inflammatory bowel disease but if someone with Crohn's reads that article then they should have a feeling to what this means mm. from the way you've written that abstract the abstracts are nearly always freely available so why not use that as a mechanism to try and expand the way that we can talk to people outside of the academic sphere. Just as a side point, it's also probably the best way of talking to normal doctors as well, because although we won't want to admit it, we don't often get the stuff that's written in academic, whereas if it's written in good, plain language, then even we can understand it as well, and it might be better to get it across to the medical staff. <laughs> that's an excellent point. Um, so, so that's one thing that we could do today or tomorrow. So what other things might we be able to do um, having uh, listened to some fascinating uh, aspects of, uh, of research as we've just been talking about? I would say make research part of your everyday language. Don't make research something special and extra. Inquire about what research is going on and drop it into conversation when you're talking with patients so that it becomes something that happens in and amongst and around you. Encourage the people that are on studies to talk about their studies, to describe them, to, to enthuse about them to other people. I know that within our field of paediatric oncology, 
It's not at all uncommon to have people asking about studies because they've heard other families talking about them. Uh, and that sort of generation of a way of integrating things can start tomorrow. You can go out there, you can find out about what's happening, and you can be positive about it occurring in the place that you work. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think I might, I th trying to get everybody into this debate, uh, understanding our own other, other people's views, recognizing that research involving children and young people is a highly emotive issue. We love our children, we want to protect them, um, but we need to recognize we need to protect them from the vulnerability uh, to unevidence-based care, while we also protect them from the vulnerability to research intervention. And I think we need to help people understand history that one of my favorite quotations is that doctors only stopped killing their patients when they learned to count. Um, and it means when we finally embarked on research, um, when we finally embar embarked on evidence-based care, we started to improve care and the improvements have been dramatic. And the ethicists will write about the, the disasters and the problems, they certainly happened, but we mustn't forget the background uh, that research has been good for us. So what we could do tomorrow is just your next clinic or a ward round, just have a chat. Yes, and we hope our four articles will help in that process, demystifying, making friends and integrating research into care. If you're thinking of doing some research, then the first thing you should really do is ask the people who have that condition and the families that live around it, what is it that you want making better? What research would you like to see? You should be generating your research questions because they are important to families and young people, not because you fancy doing a little bit of something. I like that as a worthy ending to a fascinating talk with the three of you, Jenny, Hugh and Bob. Thank you, Simon too, for writing. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us next time for the ADC Spotlight podcast. Mm -hmm.